Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing in our long series of The Conquest of Bread. One preemptive note I'll give, this chapter talks about crowns and shillings and expects you to know what those are. The main thing you need to know is one crown is five shillings. There's a comparison drawn where an employer pays half a crown but gets five shillings worth of value. So basically an employer getting twice as much as he's actually paying out. So just have the appropriate percentage of outrage in mind when you hear that section. So let's get started on this week's reading. Chapter 4 Expropriation Section 1 It is told of Rothschild that, seeing his fortune threatened by the revolution of 1848, he hit upon the following stratagem. Quote, I am quite willing to admit, said he, that my fortune has been accumulated at the expense of others. But if it were divided tomorrow among the millions of Europe, the share of each would only amount to four shillings. Very well. Then I undertake to render to each his four shillings if he asks me for it. End quote. Having given due publicity to his promise, our millionaire proceeded as usual to stroll quietly through the streets of Frankfurt. Three or four passers-by asked for their four shillings, which he dispersed with a sardonic smile. His stratagem succeeded, and the family of the millionaire is still in possession of its wealth. It is in much the same fashion that the shrewd heads among the middle classes reason when they say, quote, Ah, expropriation! I know what that means. You take all the overcoats and lay them in a heap, and everyone is free to help himself and fight for the best. End quote. But such jests are irrelevant as well as flippant. What we want is not a redistribution of overcoats, although it must be said that even in such a case, the shivering folk would see advantage in it. Nor do we want to divide up the wealth of the Rothschilds. What we do want is so to arrange things that every human being born into the world shall be ensured the opportunity, in the first instance, of learning some useful occupation, and of becoming skilled in it, and next, that he shall be free to work at his trade without asking leave of master or owner, and without handing over to landlord or capitalist the lion's share of what he produces. As to the wealth held by the Rothschilds or the Vanderbilts, it will serve us to organize our system of communal production. The day when the laborer may till the ground without paying away half of what he produces, the day when the machines necessary to prepare the soil for rich harvests are at the free disposal of the cultivators, the day when the worker in the factory produces for the community and not the monopolist, that day will see the workers clothed and fed, and there will be no more Rothschilds or other exploiters. No one will then have to sell his working power for a wage that only represents a fraction of what he produces. So far, so good, say our critics. But you will have Rothschilds coming in from the outside. How are you to prevent a person from amassing millions in China and then settling amongst you? How are you going to prevent such a one from surrounding himself with lackeys and wage slaves, from exploiting them and enriching himself at their expense? You cannot bring about a revolution all over the world at the same time. Well then, are you going to establish custom houses on your frontiers to search all who enter your country and confiscate the money they bring with them? Anarchist policemen firing on travellers would be a fine spectacle. 
but at the root of this argument, there is a great error. Those who propound it have never paused to inquire whence come the fortunes of the rich. A little thought would, however, suffice to show them that these fortunes have their beginnings in the poverty of the poor. When there are no longer any destitute, there will no longer be any rich to exploit them. Let us glance for a moment at the Middle Ages, when great fortunes began to spring up. A feudal baron seizes on a fertile valley, but as long as the fertile valley is empty of folk, our baron is not rich. His land brings him in nothing. He might as well possess a property in the moon. What does our baron do to enrich himself? He looks out for peasants. For poor peasants. If every peasant farmer had a piece of land, free from rent and taxes, if he had in addition the tools and the stock necessary for farm labour, who would plough the lands of the baron? Everyone would look after his own. But there are thousands of destitute persons ruined by wars, or drought, or pestilence. They have neither horse nor plough. Iron was very costly in the Middle Ages, and a draft horse still more so. All these destitute creatures are trying to better their condition. One day they see on the road at the confines of our baron's estate a notice board indicating by certain signs adapted to their comprehension that the labourer who is willing to settle on his estate will receive the tools and materials to build his cottage and sow his fields and a portion of land rent-free for a certain number of years. The number of years is represented by so many crosses on the signboard and the peasant understands the meaning of these crosses. So the poor wretches come to settle on the baron's lands. They make roads, drain the marshes, build villages. In nine or ten years, the baron begins to tax them. Five years later, he increases the rent. Then he doubles it, and the peasant accepts these new conditions because he cannot find better ones elsewhere. Little by little, with the aid of laws made by the barons, the poverty of the peasant becomes the source of the landlord's wealth, and it is not only the lord of the manor who preys upon him. A whole host of usurers swoop down upon the villages, multiplying as the wretchedness of the peasants increases. That is how these things happened in the Middle Ages. And today, is it not still the same thing? If there were free lands which the peasant could cultivate if he pleased, would he pay fifty pounds to some shabble of a duke? Footnote 1 for condescending to sell him a scrap. Would he burden himself with a lease which absorbed a third of the produce? Would he, on the metier system, consent to give half of his harvest to the landowner? But he has nothing, so he will accept any conditions, if only he can keep body and soul together, while he tills the soil and enriches the landlord. So in the 19th century, just as in the Middle Ages, the poverty of the peasant is a source of wealth to the landed proprietor. Section 2. The landlord owes his riches to the poverty of the peasants, and the wealth of the capitalist comes from the same source. Take the case of a citizen of the middle class, who somehow or other finds himself in possession of £20,000. He could, of course, spend his money at the rate of £2,000 a year, a mere bagatelle in these days of fantastic, senseless luxury but then he would have nothing left at the end of ten years. So, being a practical person, he prefers to keep his fortune intact and win for himself a snug little annual income as well. This is very easy in our society. 
for the good reason that the towns and villages swarm with workers who have not the wherewithal to live for a month, or even a fortnight. So our worthy citizen starts a factory. The banks hasten to lend him another £20,000, especially if he has a reputation for business ability, and with this round sum he can command the labour of 500 hands. If all the men and women in the countryside had their daily bread assured and their daily needs already satisfied, who would work for our capitalist at a wage of half a crown a day, while the commodities one produces in a day sell in the market for a crown or more? Unhappily, we know it all too well, the poor quarters of our towns and the neighbouring villages are full of needy wretches, whose children clamour for bread. So before the factory is well finished, the workers hasten to offer themselves. Where a hundred are required, three hundred besiege the doors, and from the time the mill is started, the owner, if he only has average business capacities, will clear forty pounds a year out of each mill hand he employs. He is thus able to lay by a snug little fortune, and if he chooses a lucrative trade and has business talents, he will soon increase his income by doubling the number of men he exploits. So he becomes a personage of importance. He can afford to give dinners to other personages, to the local magnates, the civic, legal, and political dignitaries. With his money, he can marry money. By and by, he may pick and choose places for his children, and later on perhaps get something good from the government, a contract for the army or for the police, his gold breeds gold, till at last a war, or even a rumour of war, or a speculation on the stock exchange, gives him his great opportunity. Nine-tenths of the great fortunes made in the United States are, as Henry George has shown in his Social Problems, the result of knavery on a large scale assisted by the state. In Europe, nine-tenths of the fortunes made in our monarchies and republics have the same origin. There are not two ways of becoming a millionaire. This is the secret of wealth. Find the starving and destitute, pay them half a crown, and make them produce five shillings worth in the day, amass a fortune by these means, and then increase it by some lucky speculation, made with the help of the state. Need we go on to speak of small fortunes attributed by the economists to forethought and frugality, when we know that mere saving in itself brings in nothing, so long as the pence saved are not used to exploit the famishing? Take a shoemaker, for instance. Grant that his work is well paid, that he has plenty of custom, and that by dint of strict frugality, he contrives to lay by from 18 pence to 2 shillings a day, perhaps 2 pounds a month. Grant that our shoemaker is never ill, that he does not half-starve himself in spite of his passion for economy, that he does not marry or that he has no children, that he does not die of consumption. Suppose anything and everything you please. Well, at the age of 50, he will have not scraped together 800 pounds and he will not have enough to live on during his old age when he is past work. Assuredly, this is not how fortunes are made. But suppose our shoemaker, as soon as he is laid by a few pence, thriftily conveys them to the savings bank, and that the savings bank lends them to the capitalist, who is just about to employ labour, i.e. exploit the poor. Then our shoemaker takes an apprentice, the child of some poor wretch, who will think himself lucky if in five years' time his son has learned the trade and is able to earn his living. 
Meanwhile, our shoemaker does not lose by him, and if trade is brisk, he soon takes a second, and then a third apprentice. By and by, he will take two or three working men, thankful to receive half a crown a day for work that is worth five shillings. And if our shoemaker is in luck, that is to say, if he is keen enough and mean enough, his working men and apprentices will bring him in nearly one pound a day, over and above the product of his own toil. He can then enlarge his business. He will gradually become rich, and no longer have any need to stint himself in the necessaries of life. He will leave a snug little fortune to his son. That is what people call being economical and having frugal, temperate habits. At bottom, it is nothing more nor less than grinding the face of the poor. Commerce seems an exception to this rule. Such a man, we are told, buys tea in China, brings it to France, and realizes a profit of 30% on his original outlay. He has exploited nobody. Nevertheless, the case is quite similar. If our merchant had carried his bales on his back, well and good. In early medieval times, that was exactly how foreign trade was conducted, and so no one reached such giddy heights of fortune as in our days. Very few and very hardly earned were the gold coins which the medieval merchant gained from a long and dangerous voyage. It was less the love of money than the thirst of travel and adventure that inspired his undertakings. Nowadays, the method is simpler. A merchant who has some capital need not stir from his desk to become wealthy. He telegraphs to an agent telling him to buy a hundred tons of tea. He freights a ship, and in a few weeks, in three months if it is a sailing ship, the vessels bring him his cargo. He does not even take the risks of the voyage, for his tea and his vessel are insured, and if he has expended four thousand pounds, he will receive more than five or six thousand. That is to say, if he has not attempted to speculate in some novel commodities, in which case he runs a chance of either doubling his fortune or losing it altogether. Now, how could he find men willing to cross the sea to travel to China and back, to endure hardship and slavish toil, and to risk their lives for a miserable pittance? How could he find dock laborers willing to load and unload his ships for starvation wages? How? Because they are needy and starving. Go to the seaports, visit the cookshops and taverns on the quays, and look at these men who have come to hire themselves crowding around the dock gates which they besiege from early dawn, hoping to be allowed to work on the vessels. Look at these sailors, happy to be hired for a long voyage after weeks and months of waiting. All their lives long they have gone to the sea in ships, and they will sail in others still, until they have perished in the waves. Enter their homes, look at their wives and children in rags, living one knows not how till the father's return, and you will have the answer to the question. Multiply examples. Choose them where you will. Consider the origin of all fortunes, large or small, whether arising out of commerce, finance, manufacturers, or the land. Everywhere you will find that the wealth of the wealthy springs from the poverty of the poor. This is why an anarchist society need not fear the advent of a Rothschild who would settle in its midst. If every member of the community knows that after a few hours of productive toil he will have a right to all the pleasures that civilization procures, and to those deeper sources of enjoyment which art and science offer to all who seek them, he will not sell his strength for a starvation wage. 
no one will volunteer to work for the enrichment of your Rothschild. His golden guineas will be only so many pieces of metal, useful for various purposes, but incapable of breeding more. In answering the above objection, we have at the same time indicated the scope of expropriation. It must apply to everything that enables any man, be he financier, mill owner, or landlord, to appropriate the product of others' toil. Our formula is simple and comprehensive. We do not want to rob any one of his coat, but we wish to give to the workers all those things the lack of which makes them fall an easy prey to the exploiter. And we will do our utmost, and none shall lack aught, that not a single man shall be forced to sell the strength of his right arm to obtain a bare subsistence for him and his babes. This is what we mean when we talk of expropriation. This will be our duty during the revolution, for whose coming we look, not 200 years hence, but soon, very soon. Section 3. The ideas of anarchism in general, and of expropriation in particular, find much more sympathy than we are apt to imagine among men of independent character, and those for whom idleness is not the supreme ideal. Still, our friends often warn us, Take care you do not go too far. Humanity cannot be changed in a day, so do not be in too great a hurry with your schemes of expropriation and anarchy, or you will be in danger of achieving no permanent result. Now, what we fear with regard to expropriation is exactly the contrary. We are afraid of not going far enough, of carrying out expropriation on too small a scale to be lasting. We would not have the revolutionary impulse arrested in mid-career to exhaust itself in half-measures which would content no one, and while producing a tremendous confusion in society and stopping its customary activities, would have no vital power, would merely spread general discontent and inevitably prepare the way for the triumph of reaction. There are, in fact, in a modern state, established relations which it is practically impossible to modify if one attacks them only in detail. There are wheels within wheels in our economic organization. The machinery is so complex and interdependent that no one part can be modified without disturbing the whole. This becomes clear as soon as an attempt is made to expropriate anything. Let us suppose that in a certain country, a limited form of expropriation is affected. For example, that, as it has been suggested more than once, only the property of the great landlords is socialized, whilst the factories are left untouched. Or that, in a certain city, house property is taken over by the commune, but everything else is left to private ownership. Or that, in some manufacturing centre, the factories are communalized, but the land is not interfered with. The same result would follow in each case a terrible shattering of the industrial system without the means of reorganizing it on new lines. Industry and finance would be at a deadlock, yet a return to the first principles of justice would not have been achieved, and society would find itself powerless to construct a harmonious whole. If agriculture were freed from great landowners, while industry still remained the bond slave of the capitalist, the merchant, and the banker, nothing would be accomplished. The peasant suffers today, not only in having to pay rent to the landlord, he is oppressed on all hands by existing conditions. He is exploited by the tradesman, who makes him pay half a crown for a spade which, 
measured by the labour spent on it, is not worth more than sixpence. He is taxed by the state, which cannot do without its formidable hierarchy of officials, and finds it necessary to maintain an expensive army, because the traders of all nations are perpetually fighting for the markets, and any day a little quarrel arising from the exploitation of some part of Asia or Africa may result in a war. Then again, the peasant suffers from the depopulation of country places. The young people are attracted to the large manufacturing towns by the bait of high wages paid temporarily by the producers of articles of luxury, or by the attractions of a more stirring life. The artificial protection of industry, the industrial exploitation of foreign countries, the prevalence of stock jobbing, the difficulty of improving the soil and the machinery of production. All these agencies combine nowadays to work against agriculture, which is burdened not only by rent, but by the whole complex of conditions in a society based on exploitation. Thus, even if the expropriation of land were accomplished, and everyone were free to till the soil and cultivate it to the best advantage, without paying rent, agriculture, even though it should enjoy, which can by no means be taken for granted, a momentary prosperity, would soon fall back into the slough in which it finds itself day to day. The whole thing would have to be begun over again, with increased difficulties. The same holds true of industry. Take the converse case. Instead of turning the agricultural labourers into peasant proprietors, make over the factories to those who work in them. Abolish the master manufacturers, but leave the landlord his land, the banker his money, the merchant his exchange. Maintain the swarm of idlers who live on the toil of the workmen, the thousand and one middlemen, the state with its numberless officials, and industry would come to a standstill. Finding no purchasers in the mass of peasants who would remain poor, not possessing the raw material, and unable to export their produce, partly on account of the stoppage of trade, and still more so because industries spread all over the world, the manufacturers would feel unable to struggle, and thousands of workers would be thrown upon the streets. These starving crowds would be ready and willing to submit to the first schemer who came to exploit them. They would even consent to return to the old slavery, under promise of guaranteed work. Or, finally, suppose you oust the landowners and hand over the mills and factories to the worker, without interfering with the swarm of middlemen who drain the product of our manufacturers and speculate in corn and flour, meat and groceries, in our great centres of commerce. Then, as soon as the exchange of produce is slackened, as soon as the great cities are left without bread, while the great manufacturing centres find no buyers for the articles of luxury they produce, the counter-revolution is bound to take place, and it would come, treading upon the slain, sweeping the towns and villages with shot and shell, indulging in orgies of proscriptions and deportations, such as were seen in France in 1815, 1848, and 1871. All is interdependent in a civilised society. It is impossible to reform any one thing without altering the whole. Therefore, on the day a nation will strike at private property under any one of its forms, territorial or industrial, it will be obliged to attack them all. The very success of the revolution will impose it. Besides, even if it were desired, it would be impossible to confine the change to a partial expropriation, 
once the principle of the divine right of property is shaken, no amount of theorizing will prevent its overthrow, here by the slaves of the field, there by the slaves of the machine. If a great town, Paris for example, were to confine itself to taking possession of the dwelling houses of the factories, it would be forced also to deny the rights of the bankers to levy upon the commune a tax amounting to two million pounds, in the form of interest for former loans. The great city would be obliged to put itself in touch with the rural districts, and its influence would inevitably urge the peasants to free themselves from the landowner. It would be necessary to communalize the railways, that the citizens might get food and work, and lastly, to prevent the waste of supplies, and to guard against the trusts of the corn speculators, like those to whom the Paris Commune of 1793 fell a prey. It would have to place in the hands of the city the work of stocking its warehouses with commodities and apportioning the produce. Some socialists still seek, however, to establish a distinction. Of course, they say, the soil, the mines, the mills, and manufacturers must be appropriated. These are the instruments of production, and it is right we should consider them public property. But articles of consumption, food, clothes, and dwellings, should remain private property. Popular common sense has got the better of this subtle distinction. We are not savages who can live in the woods without other shelter than the branches. The civilized man needs a roof, a room, a hearth, and a bed. It is true that the bed, the room, and the house is a home of idleness for the non-producer, but for the worker, a room, properly heated and lighted, is as much an instrument of production as the tool or the machine. It is the place where the nerves and the sinews gather strength for the work of the morrow. The rest of the workman is the daily repairing of the machine. The same argument applies even more obviously to food. The so-called economists, who make the just-mentioned distinction, would hardly deny that the coal burnt in a machine is as necessary to production as the raw material itself. How then can food, without which the human machine could do no work, be excluded from the list of things indispensable to the producer. Can this be a relic of religious metaphysics? The rich man's feast is indeed a matter of luxury, but the food of the worker is just as much a part of production as the fuel burnt by the steam engine. The same with clothing. We are not New Guinea savages, and if the dainty gowns of our ladies must rank as objects of luxury, there is nevertheless a certain quantity of linen, cotton, and woolen stuff which is a necessity of life to the producer. The shirt and trousers in which he goes to work, the jacket he slips on after the day's toil is over, are as necessary to him as the hammer to the anvil. Whether we like it or not, this is what the people mean by a revolution. As soon as they have made a clean sweep of the government, they will seek first of all to ensure to themselves decent dwellings and sufficient food and clothes, free of capitalist rent. And the people will be right. The methods of the people will be much more in accordance with science than those of the economists who drew so many distinctions between instruments of production and articles of consumption. The people understand that this is just the point where the revolution ought to begin, and they will lay the foundations of the only economic science worthy the name, a science which might be called the study of the needs of humanity and of the economic means to satisfy them. 
And this concludes our reading for this week. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show's Twitter at leftistreading. This podcast is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can check out abnormalmapping.com to find lots of other leftist podcasts on all sorts of topics. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can check out it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening and keep reading.